This talk by Douglas Harding was given in 1971. My dear friend Colin Oliver, who is happily with us this evening, um, about a fortnight ago produced an Egyptian text which I shall use for this talk. I can't guarantee its uh, uh, authenticity uh, except as to its meaning. And this is, uh, uh, I think, uh, quite clear, uh, if we will go into it. Its meaning is quite clear. And it is this. Um, it's speaking of the of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The text, I suppose, would be 4,000 years old. The little bit I'm quoting runs like this. The woman said to the man, Who am I? And the man answered, You are the appearance. But if you will let the appearance go, you will be the life, as I am the life, and we shall be one life, and our life is the life of all beings. If you will let the appearance go, you will be the life. The chairman referred to the uh, theory that I have no head. Uh, I have one, uh, actually. <laughs> but I've let it go, you see. I've let it go. From here to where you are. Well, that is the text of this talk. Another text, uh, a Christian one, uh, could be uh, taken from Tennyson. Nearer is he than breathing, closer than hands and feet. Or another Christian one, Eckhart. God's in, I'm out. These are all statements, really, of what you might call the perennial philosophy, or the great hypothesis and what, briefly, is this hypothesis? It is that within oneself is something else. And what is that something else? Which is within oneself, more oneself than oneself, and yet not oneself. Well, it has many names, and one of them is the Buddha nature, another is the void might be the kingdom of heaven, the Godhead, spirit. There are many, many names for this mysterious core which is alleged to be within oneself. And this great hypothesis, or this perennial philosophy, say that we neglect this core at our peril. And if we fail to find it, we have really uh, missed the bus. They also say that we can find it if we wish. It is entirely accessible and very clear, very self-authenticating, self-luminous, obvious. Well, I'm going to very briefly ask you with me to put this hypothesis 
to the test this evening. And I'm not here to entertain you, really. I'm here to ask you if you will please do some work on this hypothesis to see whether it is false or is it true. Is there this mysterious core within us, this non-human nature, does it exist within us? If so, let's have a look to see whether it does. And if it doesn't, let us be done with it. If it's very old, and if it's not true, we've been calmed. And if it is true, we neglect it at our peril. And there's time to go into it before we have coffee. But there's time to test it. But you'll have to do some work with me on it. Now, when you are looking for something in the laboratory and testing something, you really have to know what you're looking for before you can really see it. There's a story of a um, great scientist uh, who was looking uh, down a uh, microscope at a phenomenon, uh, at a, a natural specimen, and he asked another chap who was uh, a, a greater scientist who was standing by to have a look at this peculiar specimen. And the second one said, how can I look to see this thing unless you tell me what to look for? How can I see it unless I know what I'm looking for? Now, in order to find this interior treasure, which is nearer to us than ourselves and nearer than hands and feet, as Tennyson says, we have to have some idea of what it is we're looking for. And we've also got to have some idea of the laboratory conditions, of how to look, when to look, where to look, what to look for, in what mood to look, and so on. Now, these conditions are very clearly laid down by the experts in the perennial philosophy in this hypothesis. And we, we, first of all, let us then take note of the laboratory conditions for carrying out this test as to whether this is true or not. What is it we're looking for? Well, I think the consensus uh, is uh, that we are looking uh, for something uh, which is quite empty, devoid of any characteristics, clear, translucent, transparent, like water or breath, air, light, something which has no boundaries, something which is quite brilliantly evident, if we will look. That's the kind of thing we're looking for within us. And it's said to be nearer to us than our hands and feet. Now, wouldn't it be very negligent if it is easy to look, if it is here, if it is so valuable, wouldn't it be very negligent not to look for this thing here? What prevents us from looking? We know what to look for. Now, where are we to look? This, too, is indicated. The Buddha directs us to look within this fathom-long body. On the whole, attention is directed to the upper part of this body. Zen talks about our original face, Hinduism talks about our third eye. Jesus talks about the single eye. Sufism 
has a very great deal about one's head, losing one's head, and so on. The very word Dao, the Chinese character, is made up of two characters, one for head and one for going. And the second one is like a chopper. The consensus is that it is not only absolutely empty and void, as I've said, but you will find it in your body or here at the top of your body somewhere, if you will look. Now, I'm not imagining this. You can check uh, that I'm right about this. So we know what to look for, roughly, and we know where to look. Now, who is to look? Who is the scientist in this laboratory who is going to look? Well, nobody else but oneself. Only you can see it for yourself. I can't see it for you. The sages, the authorities, cannot see it for you. You have to look for yourself. In other words, only the first person singular can find this treasure. It is inaccessible to anyone else. So here, the material to be examined and the examiner himself are the same. And the laboratory is the same. The lab, the specimen, the scientist are all done up in one handy package. And this is very convenient. Now, what qualifications do you need to look? An important question. Well, it is true that many of the experts have indicated that preliminary work usually has to be done before we are able to see uh, this interior treasure, to find it. Much preliminary work is needed in many cases. But I think they all add that this preliminary work is for the purpose of removing the notion that any preliminary work has to be done. That in fact, the time to look is now. The qualifications we need are uh, that we will look in all simplicity with just whatever we are now. Nothing has to be acquired before we can see what we are. The idea that we have to build up something, build up character, spiritual expertise, and so on, merit, certainly exists. But in the end, we have to see that it is worthless, and that we all along were in receipt of and able to see this very simple thing. You can say that what we need, the, 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 the expertise we need for this is to give up the idea of any expertise, whatever, to abandon all attainment, to become, indeed, as little children. We cannot see this while we are doing it uh, with any kind of prejudice, with training at the back of us, with opinion at the back of us with any acquired expertise, whatever. We will see it when we are quite simple, quite trusting, open, like little children. So we know what it looks like, 
We know where to look. We know when to look, which is now, unless we have decided to delay the operation, we shall one day have to look now, and we know in what mood to look. In the mood of a small child who has no prejudices, who is completely open and simple, trusting what is given, abandoning thought, trusting what is given in simple perception, going as one Zen master says, going by what we see and not by what we think. Huang Po says, the ordinary man goes by what he thinks, the sage goes by what he sees. The sage is simple. We need to drop conceptual thought in order to find this. Now, I think we really have a, a fair idea of how how to test this hypothesis. Now, let us get down to business. I'm, first of all, however, I will outline the tests I propose we make. The first one is to look at oneself now, where one is for oneself. And this one, I hope we shall do now or presently, in a minute or two. The second one is to submit this question of what it's like, where we are, of who we are, to an outside observer and ask him what he makes uh, of this mysterious call which we are alleged to have. And the third one is to test this hypothesis by seeing what facts it covers, how it answers to the facts. Because hypotheses are no use unless they take care of facts and make facts which are otherwise wild and uh, incomprehensible hang together. And the last test is the practical test, does it work? The pragmatic test. And the last two tests we can't obviously cover here tonight. But we can start this business, and they will last all our lives, especially the pragmatic test of how it works. So this extraordinary hypothesis that within us is something which is not like us, that there is in us this extraordinary emptiness, this fantastic treasure, this mystery, which goes by so many names, well, this is going to be tested, and if it's not true, let us give it up. If it is true, for God's sake, let us live according to how we really are. Now, just perhaps one word about the reason for going into this. The reasons for going into this. You have occurred, you happened into the world. Isn't it rather sad, isn't it rather unenterprising not to have a look at what's happened into the world? You know, just to have occurred is a fantastic treasure, marvelous thing to have occurred. 
What a pity to take everyone's word for what has occurred except your own. You are the authority on what you are, what has occurred, where you are, what has occurred into your chair this evening. You are the authority, I'm not. How unenterprising not to go into this, to have a look for yourself, to see whether this hypothesis is true or not. Curiosity alone would surely indicate that this hypothesis needs testing before we go any further with our life. Not only curiosity, but just plain common sense. You know, you have a tool for living, and that's yourself. Well, how can you live, how can I live, sensibly, unless I know what that tool is? I don't use a tool from my tool room without looking to see whether it's a hammer or saw. But if I do neglect to see what kind of tool I'm using, I shall hurt myself. And you know, we hurt ourselves when we don't know what we are. If you're just a human being, without this fantastic, divine, central, mysterious core, you're one kind of thing, suited for one kind of life. But if you are what the perennial philosophy says, you are utterly, utterly, utterly different. And a different kind of life will stem from that realization. And it seems to me crazy, if we have the opportunity of finding out what tool we have for living, not to have a look. We shall hurt ourselves if we are wrong. So those are, reason, those are reasons for now putting this fantastic hypothesis to the test. Because it is fantastic. It is a wild hypothesis, extraordinary hypothesis. I mean, a tree is a tree, isn't it? And a stone is a stone. The stone is not got a, some kind of funny core in it. A stone is a stone through and through, and a tree is a tree through and through, and you are, uh, well, what are you? I mean, is it, is it not true as common sense says? And the science says seemingly that you are blood and brains and bones and all that stuff. Is, isn't this true? And if it's not true, why, what a fantastic thing. Is there room in you for God? That's what it really comes to. Is this a, a suitable habitation for the Buddha nature? How could the source of the whole, whole universe lodge itself in that fathom-long body? It's an extraordinary idea. Well, if it's rubbish, let's get rid of it. If it's true, let's live by it. Let's test it. And as I said, the first test is for you, yourself now, to have a look at the place where you are to see what it's like. Now, this is much too big a gathering for a workshop, and this is what we should be, not a lecture, but a workshop. And a workshop is a place uh, where you get on with a job. And you don't listen to somebody spouting from platform, you really get down to business. And uh, I'm really uh, hoping now not to entertain you, but to get you busy. And what is the task? Well, we have, we have uh, devised a number of ways of looking to see what it's like where we are. 
And we can't go into all these now, and I can just mention perhaps one or two, and suggest one or two others for you to test on your own, or with friends later on. These are very simple, direct ways of attending to what it's like where you are, first person singular, present tense. In the manner I suggested, looking for that which the sages have asked us to look for, this clarity, this voidness. Right where we are, in the upper part of our bodies, remember, looking where we are with the simplicity of little children for this blazingly, allegedly blazingly obvious core to which we really are. Well, really, it's over to you. And let me put it like this. You're looking at Douglas here, spouting away about this mysterious thing. Now, I'm going to ask you to look not only at what you're looking at, but at the other end of the process. Look at what you're looking out of. And you can see, if you, if you, if you attend, you can see at this moment what you're looking out of. Now, are you, in your own experience, looking out of a solid object at me? Are you looking out of a box, a meatball, if you will excuse that expression? Are you looking at me out of anything at all? Is it dark where you are? Is it small? Is it pink? Is it old? Is it mortal? Is it a thing? Is it like what you're looking at? Do you have where you are anything like this? Right where you are in your chair. Is there anything like this? Well, I can swear to you that here is absolute clarity. Speckless clearness full of you. And above here I find nothing but emptiness full of you. Nothing here at all. I'm not looking at you out of a thing. It's not dark and small here. It's void. It's full of you. Now, what's it like where you are? Are you in this condition or are you not? You are the authority. And if you tell me that where you are is indeed given now in all simplicity, in all truthfulness, a solid lump, and you're looking at me out of that dark box through two slits and a meatball, so to say, you're the authority. And I have to bow to what you say. But I would say go on looking until uh, perhaps... Uh, you find otherwise, or it's confirmed. Only you are in a position to tell the world what it's like being you. And I suggest to you that you've taken everybody's opinion about it except your own. It's what, it's what I did anyway. Nobody's been in here but me, and nobody can tell me what it's like in here. I tell you. And don't you let anybody tell you, don't you let Douglas or anyone else tell you what it's like right where you are. You are the authority. And if it's dark and small in the box, and it's got two little slits in it, well, if that's your story, you tell us.
But it's surprising, it would be surprising, if this is indeed what you found. Well now, first test over. The second one I'll be brief with. The second one is asking other people about this. Now, we can't do this in this room because we uh, haven't time and not set up for it. But if I want to find out what is here, this, this mysterious core of emptiness or whatever, I have, in addition to my own story, the outsider's story. Supposing I say, I can't trust myself, I don't really, I'm not really authoritative on this. I must have outside confirmation. Well, fair enough. And this is where I invite any observer to come up here and see for himself whether I'm lying or telling the truth. And we in America did devise an experiment like this. We walked up to each other with uh, imitation miniature cameras and we lost each other on the way. And I believe, sure, that if any of you came up here, you who are in receipt of my face now, and were armed, especially if you were armed with the right sort of optical equipment, cameras and lenses, you would lose my face on the way, presently coming to a place uh, where you uh, found my nose, and uh, nearer to the pores of skin, cells, molecules, uh, atoms and so on. And long before you arrived at a point of contact, every, everything remotely like Douglas's face would have vanished you would find almost nothing before you got here. Now, I complete the story and say, yes, you're right, here is nothing whatever. Now, this is confirmation, and it can be done and should be done by you under, so to say, laboratory conditions. And this confirms, the outside story surely confirms the inside story, does it not? Test number two. Test number three, this astonishing truth or hypothesis or philosophy, what facts does it account for? You see, a hypothesis to be useful has to agree with the facts and interpret them, make sense of some area of the world which hitherto uh, was not, uh, not uh, really orderly. Well, it makes, for me, sense of, in fact, all the world. It makes sense of life and the cosmos, evolution, all that sort of thing, in ways which I cannot now go into. But let us take just one instance, and this is the question of human development. And briefly, uh, the story runs like this. When this hypothesis is applied to the story of individual development within society, uh, the story, the tale, looks something like this. When we're born, we are faceless, we are headless, we are at large. The infant is at large. I won't go into all the evidence for this, uh, but uh, you can go into it yourselves later. The infant is at large. The infant does not see himself as others see him. He really is at the center of and coincident with uh, his, uh, his universe. He's unseparate from the world. But he learns gradually 
to take another view of himself, to see himself as others see him. He learns to stand outside himself and look in at himself from a distance uh, of a few feet. And he sees himself to be what others see him to be. Now, this is an absolutely necessary lesson, and we uh, shall be, uh, find ourselves in danger of hospitalization if we don't learn it. It's absolutely essential to get that head on you. Absolutely essential. But you see, we overlearn this lesson. We lose our first personhood, which is our infant innocence, our largeness. We lose it to this third personhood, this view of ourselves as appearance. We lose the reality and exchange it for the appearance. You remember I started off by saying, by quoting this Egyptian scripture, the woman said to the man, who am I? And he said, you are an appearance, but you will let the appearance go, you will be the life. Well, as we grew up, we hung on to the appearance, we didn't let it go. We even took that appearance in the mirror, and instead of trusting the appearance there as appearance, and leaving it there, instead of letting it go, we took that appearance, cleared it to the mirror, turned it round, and plumped it on to the life, and the life became the appearance and we half died. So, we learn to thin ourselves, to third person ourselves, to say we are only what we look like to others. We become solid objects, boxes in our imagination, and try to live out of our third personhood. So we get shrunk by ourselves, by society, by parents and teachers. We get shrunk from being everything to being almost nothing. Thinged, third-personed, reduced from a cosmos to a meatball. Well, what is the effect? The, we fight back in several ways. One is to become almost suicidal in our teens about our faces. And this is a common pattern. Young people often quite desperate about their faces, and they can be as beautiful, uh, beautiful as Venus or Apollo, and still desperate about their faces. And the cure is the facelift they want, the facelift from here to there, from here to where they keep their face in the mirror, because there was nothing wrong with their faces, it was only where they kept them. Your face is all right out there, put it here, and it becomes a scapegoat, this horrible experience of being shrunk into almost nothing. And in our experience, the cure of this terrible anxiety about one's face uh, in uh, youth is to show yourself where you keep your face, to have that facelift you desire from here to there. And this works. Another reaction is extreme shyness and bashfulness, shamefacedness, all the shame of having a face, as Rilke says, all the shame of having a thing. So you'll, you know, you want to hide from being seen. The shame of this horrible thing. Nothing wrong with it. It's only it's being here that has it's, it's so awful. Put it where it belongs, and why you are free again. Another reaction is 
grieved. Well, in our hearts, we know we're first person. We know the world is in us. We know that as first person singular, present tense, we are not in the world, but the world is in us. That everything is ours. But that society denies this. Our teachers, our parents deny this. We, we deny it ourselves. Yet we know the world is ours. How do we react? Greed. We've made, we've, we're under delusion about our, our identity, about our first personhood. So what can we do but win back, if we can, a portion of our lost empire? We are worldwide. As first person, one is all things. We deny this fact. We are shrunk into this little thing. So what we do is to try and prove as much as far as we can, miserably prove our at-largeness by owning, by owning more and more, by getting more and more, by seeking fame, possessions, power. If we knew, if we saw who we were, all this would be ridiculous. Another reaction is violence, aggression, gross egotism, selfishness. You see, a world, a society which has shrunk me from being first person into third person has planted, instead of, instead of the world on my shoulder, it's planted this chip on my shoulder, this block or chip of a head on my shoulder. And I have a chip on my shoulder, a real chip. And I will pay back that society which has done this terrible, terrible, traumatic thing to me. I will fight fight it by every means. Because it's done a terrible thing. It, it has deprived me of my first personhood. It thinged me, smalled me, shrunk me. And other reactions, drugs. You know, the so-called mind-expanding drugs are artificial means of winning back the at-largeness, the love, the expansion we enjoyed as children, as infants, and we get it out of a syringe or a pill or something, in a, in a very, very unsatisfactory, brief and dangerous and illegal fashion. And of course the additional satisfaction is where the illegality of it, because this helps us to get our own back on the society which has done this terrible thing to us and rob us of first personhood. So, drugs come into the picture. Even smoking comes into the picture. Because, you know, one account uh, well, recently on the radio of the reason for smoking, uh, two of the, two, in fact, two of the participants in the program said they smoked in order to fill the horrid space between their ears, the voidness between their ears. <laughs> now, if you, if you welcome that voidness and you love that voidness, you don't want to bang it up with pipes you don't want to eat too much, and you don't want to keep talking too much. In order to prove there must be something here for all that smoke to come out of, or this pipe to stick in, etc., etc. So even smoking, we have noticed, is reduced when people see and welcome their void nature. Well, I could go on about the colour question, about the need to trade faces, about who has the black face when I'm confronting a black man. Who has the black face? We've seen this working. This therapy working, this face therapy working in colour situations, 
in racial situations, and it's beautiful in effect. Now, I've given you a sample, a sample of the kind of problem in development, in social, in our social scene, the kind of problem which is illuminated by this hypothesis, by the perennial philosophy, by the view that the first person singular present tense is infinitely different from the third person by the view that we are not what we look like and that what you are at naught feet is utterly, utterly, utterly different from what you look like at six feet. And the difference is total. Now I've given you some instances of the kind of thing which is illuminated by our hypothesis. Now, a hypothesis, a good hypothesis, if it makes sense of hitherto unconnected areas of phenomena. I put it to you that this hypothesis uh, is a useful one. It explains a lot of human development and behavior. And I, I've only given you samples uh, of this explanation. Further instances of its use in this way will occur to you. Now, for final test, and I'm coming very near the end now, the final test is the practical one. You say, well, it's all very interesting, but what's it going to do for me, personally? Well, I don't know. I think this is really quite secondary in a sense. Is it true? If it's true, I think there's a good chance of it being more practical, more workable than a lie. So, there's a probability that it's going to be worthwhile, useful, practical. It will pass the pragmatic test. Because now you know whether you're using a hammer or a saw, so to speak. You know who you are. You can see clearly who you are. I can only indicate very briefly some of the practical consequences which I have noted in my friends, what it seems to have done for them. Perhaps also uh, a word or two about what uh, I have myself experienced. You know, I don't know how to love while I have a mask here, while I'm in a box here, while I'm a third person in the thing here. I just cannot love. Because, you see, this mask, this box here, is a rejection of you. It isn't that I'm a loving person at all, it's just that I notice there's nothing in your way. I'm built on the open plan. It isn't a case of achieving anything, it's a case of noting how it is. And if I, when I'm confronted by your face, which is a seen face, erect here an imagined face, like that. We are indeed at loggerheads, literally, loggerheads. Because I'm really serving notice on you. I have one of those things, thank you, keep off. <laughs> but you know, I haven't one of those things here. It's not like that, it's like that. And it's asymmetrical in my experience. It's face to no face, like that, George, and not like that. 
And if I put a face here to meet yours, as Eliot says, I prepare a face to meet the faces I shall meet. If I do that, there's a serving notice on you that I don't want anything to do with that face. I don't want to be that face. I don't want to have that face. Contrarywise, if I lose this meatball here, this mask, this thing, or rather, in the terms of our Egyptian scripture, let it go. It is centrifugal anyway. It doesn't want to be. It belongs in the mirror anyway. If I let it go, you are really lovable. If not very lovable, at the very, very least, totally acceptable. There's nothing to keep you off with. Well, I have noticed the blossoming in myself and my friends of love on this account of losing one's face. And this is a very worthwhile thing. I could go on about the other fruits, about something even more fundamental than having other people's faces for one's own. You see, while I am a thing here, I am separate from all the things in the world. But if I'm no thing here, I'm empty for them, but I am them. If I hang on to my thinghood, my third personhood here, I'm separate from all the world and I'm sick, really sick. Because what is sickness but separation, alienation? And what is health but completion in the whole? So to be whole is to be the whole. If I'm cut off from you, I'm sick. If I'm cut off from nature, I'm sick. I'm cut off from anything or anybody. I am to that extent sick. <laughs> While being empty, open here, I have nothing to be cut off, to cut myself off uh, with. Moreover, I know the essence of all beings because I am that clear essence. Because this clarity or essence, which I find here, this void nature, isn't Douglas's void nature, it is the void nature, but the thing is indivisible, or the no-thing is absolutely indivisible. I have insight into your... Now, not only do I have your face, but I have total insight in, and indeed identity with your true nature. And the, the satisfaction of this cannot be exaggerated. To know you, to be you, all those barriers down. Fantastic. Well, I could go on about the other fruits, about being able to see colours again, to taste food again, smell things again in a vivid way, as a child did, presumably, about the gain in concentration, in energy, even in health, about all sorts of things, but these will differ according to the individual and according to his practice, because this is nothing if it is not made operational by practice. This is not an easy way. It's an extremely difficult way. It's very easy to see this and extremely difficult to practice it all your life faithfully. But every encouragement is given because of these fruits, which will be your kind of fruits, and I've mentioned only a few of them. Well, that is the final test. And it's a lifelong one. The first two I mentioned, the test of this hypothesis, are for doing now, looking to see how it is with you now, then getting someone else to have a look at you and go up to you and lose you. The second, those are the first two tests. The third test is the test of seeing how it works out in the whole scene. This is more intellectual. 
fourth test is a practical one, and it takes your whole life, it takes your whole life to explore this. Well, is this the case? Is this wild hypothesis? God's in, I'm out. Nearer is he than breathing, closer than hands and feet. Is it a wild hypothesis? Is it crazy? Or is it true? Now you and you only can answer this where you are. I told you how I find it here. You can do it now. Don't have to wait. Isn't it negligent not to settle this question? It's your it's your business to settle this question, surely now. Not mine. All I can do is to indicate how to test this hypothesis. And let me conclude again with, let me conclude with the um, text that I started with. The woman said to the man, who am I? And the man, not having heard of women's lib, I think, said, you're an appearance. Only an appearance. But if you will let the appearance go, you will be the life as I am the life, and we shall be one life, and our life shall be the life of all creatures.